What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is David Cohen. David is a professor of social work at the School of Social Work at Florida International University. He's a therapist who has a long time experience working with psychiatric medications and coming off medications. He's also for many years been a collaborator with the psychiatric survivor movement. He's the co-author of more than a dozen books, including Your Drug May Be Your Problem with Dr. Peter Bregan and the book in French, A Critical Guide to Psychotropic Medications, published in 1995. His newest book is Mad Science, Psychiatric Coercion, Diagnosis and Drugs co-authored with Stuart Kirk and Tommy Gamori. So welcome to Madness Radio, David Cohen. Thank you, Will Hall. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you on the show. Now, you've been involved with the psychiatric survivor movement for many, many years. We were talking about this a little bit before the interview. I think probably in 1990 or so, I gave uh, my first workshop to psychiatric survivors on the issue of uh, neuroleptic antipsychotic drugs. Probably my collaboration dates from that time. So you're a real pioneer in trying to develop a critical perspective on psychiatric medications and also really guiding people and helping people in the coming off meds process. And I I really appreciate your work. I've drawn on your research and your writing Uh, for many years in my own work. And so it's really a pleasure to have you on Madness Radio. And David, tell us, how did you get involved with this? How did you go from being someone who's maybe totally new to the issue of psychiatric medications to someone who is now one of the leading authorities of a critical perspective on psychiatric drugs? It would start maybe with developing my own understanding of psychoactive drug effects as a, you know, as an adolescent or young adult who experimented with drugs. Maybe that, that's a way to, to begin that story. And David, you say psychoactive drug effects, and that's an interesting, uh, interesting term. Can you explain to us what, what you mean by that? Because that's kind of a little bit of a different way of understanding psychiatric drugs as part of a broader category of drugs, right? Yes, I think that's a good point you're making, and that's something that may have taken me decades to really fully understand. But at some point after studying drugs for many years, as an individual, as a researcher, as an author, as a therapist, as someone who interviewed many, many people taking drugs, I begin to think that all drugs are equal. All drugs fit into the same niche, same ecological niche especially drugs that we call psychoactive, meaning drugs that make us feel through probably first their action on the brain, but with many other factors that we can discuss. But drugs that make make us feel different than ourselves or much more of ourselves than we've ever felt before. Drugs that make us change or alter the way we think how we think, the way we feel, the way we act. Commonly, that's alcohol. That's the classic drug that most people can relate to. But it includes coffee. It includes Prozac. It includes Ritalin. It includes tea. It includes cocaine. All the drugs, licit or illicit, that 
really alter how we feel, how we think, how we behave, would be called psychoactive drugs. And so as a young person, you became interested in just finding out more about how these drugs were, were affecting you. Yeah, how these drugs affected me, affected my friends, affected people in society, affected people who spoke about them, who regulated them, who arrested people for taking them, who prescribed them and said you should take them, who said you should not take them. I was, just became interested in all of the activity around regulating and using and promoting and prohibiting the drugs. That was a bit fascinating to me. But later on, I became a social worker. And among my first clients, not a voluntary client necessarily, was a, uh, an adolescent, maybe 14, 15 years old. And he had a diagnosis of uh, schizophrenia. He spoke to me about the medications he was taking. I had no idea what those were, what any of the names were. But essentially, what he described to me was not only that the drugs alter how he saw things and how he felt things from when he wasn't taking the drugs, but then he said, at the same time, the drugs are altering how other people are seeing me. And I thought that that somehow, that was an insight that, that I believe he captured in, in, in this expression. The mere fact of, of knowing that he was taking the drugs he felt, his family looked at him differently. His friends looked at him differently. His doctor looked at him differently because he was on the drugs. And he was wondering whether I was looking at him differently. And that challenged me. And I was wondering what kind of a substance has the power to do all this stuff, to change social relations and the body, chemistry and social relations. I was just curious about that. And so it put me on that way of, of delving and, and, and trying to increase my understanding of that issue. And this, David, I think is one of the things that's most compelling about your work for me is that you don't just emphasize the chemical process that's going on. You also look at the social context, the relationships, the way that the drugs are used, the expectations, all the different messages that go along with ta taking drugs. And I think that you've really reached a much more comprehensive and in-depth understanding of how these medications work and don't work and and, and what they're doing or not doing to us, then I think is often discussed because we're so much focused on brain science and how chemistry affects the brain. And you've really got much more of a social perspective on drugs in general. I think you have your finger on something here. If I guess if I had to describe what I've tried to do is I've really tried to contribute to a much more social way of understanding psychoactive drug effects. And that social way includes our perceptions, our attitudes, our ideas, our feelings, our hopes, all of this stuff, our rituals, the very rituals we use even to take, to handle, to manage, to distribute, to prescribe the drugs. All of that actually does play, I believe, almost directly into the effects that we experience while taking the drugs. So that's, I have tried again to really, I think, broaden or to, to understand drug effects in a much more social way than I've seen most discussions of drug effects. And you've also presented really compelling research that supports this, this point of view. And, and let's really, let's start with the whole question of, well, don't the drugs work? I mean, psychiatric drugs are used widely there's this incredible marketing industry around them and yet at the same time 
you've been one of the people who's been exposing the fact that, well, the actual effectiveness of the drugs isn't what we think of it as. And the whole idea of psychiatric drugs working or not working itself is a very complicated question. So tell us a little bit about what you've discovered in your research about this question of do psychiatric drugs work? Well, of course, the notion, uh, the, the very phrase or the, that word working, how do they work or, or do they, by definition, that's a metaphor for something. And we say, you know, does the car work? Does the engine work? Is your job working for you? So in essence, we're trying to express some kind of fit or some kind of functioning of something that meets some, some goal that we have. And, and if it does, we'll say, well, it works. But the question, therefore, is, well, what's your goal? Who's asking? Who's talking? Who's evaluating? Who's deciding whether it works or not? And I think the key to the answer is really in that. So that depending on who you are and what you're looking for, the drug either works or doesn't work. And it may work at some times, but not work at other times in the same person. It may work for one purpose, but not work for another. So what I'm trying to say is this is really a relative notion, do the drugs work? But having said all this, if you ask the people who promote the drugs, the you could say the psychiatric or the psychopharmacological establishment, generally speaking, according to their evidence, the drugs are not working very well. And what I mean by that is I'm pointing to the three major studies released, funded by the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, without presumably direct drug industry funding. So these are federally funded studies that are really comprehensive, that look at a huge amount of data and that aren't subject to the same kind of corrupting influence that the pharmaceutical company-backed studies have. Is that, is that correct? They're major federally funded studies. They are probably the largest studies ever on the drug treatment of respectively psychoses and and uh, we and including mostly schizophrenia and depression and and bipolar disorder they're the biggest studies they're the most comprehensive studies we know the bias of industry design which has permeated the entire psychopharmacological research enterprise that was still very present in these studies but direct industry money does not seem to have been present what is it we're talking about when we're talking about effectiveness? What is it that we're really getting at? Because your work has been debunking the idea that the drugs are making some huge difference in, in people's lives. And you've really been asking us to look at other factors in what is it that actually helps people. Well, okay, so that's, that's really... <laughs> thank you for bringing us to this. And in fact, that's exactly what it is. So what else is going on? If we're really back to the same, back to square one, if we're producing the same outcomes on average, more or less, or even maybe worse outcomes when you factor in the drug-induced problems that we may be creating, some of which we have no idea that we may be creating them, but that's another story. Um, so what, what's really going on? Well, I guess, I guess the way to understand that is to say, well, what's the context in which a drug is being given or a person is taking a drug? And, and that's what I try to do. I try to understand the context of ingesting a drug, feeling its effects. And so the context has to include a lot of different things. 
it first includes immediately a place. It includes a space, a physical geographical space. It could be an office. It could be a jail cell. It could be a, a, a hospital room. It could be a padded cell. It could be the countryside. It could be on the beach. So there's a space where this is being done. So that has to be considered, I believe. Is, does the space, is it a healing space? Is it an oppressive space? Does the space smell good? Does it sound good? Is it pleasant? Is it harsh? Is it aggressive? That's part of the context. And I think that the context has, has to have something to do with how you feel the effects of something that's given to you as a treatment. I think people listening might say, well, you know, sure, whether it takes place in the countryside or in a doctor's office or a, a jail cell, that might make a little bit of a difference. But really, that's not going to be the determining factor. And actually, you're saying that there's research that shows that the context issues are even more important than the specific drug that's being used. I personally think so, certainly at the animal level, at the level of animals where you could say, you know, where, where the, the level of, of research with rodents and, and uh, mice and, and rabbits and stuff, there's a lot of research that looks at the environment of the animals and, and, and varies the environment while giving the, giving the animals various drugs expected to either stimulate them or, or put them to sleep. And then by varying the environment, we find that, that the drugs don't seem to affect the animals as we expect it, as the environment varies. And so we know, in fact, that the environment is essential. But in human studies, we haven't looked at that where humans would be much more, possibly more sensitive to the environment, and especially the social environment. So I've just mentioned the geographic, the sort of physical environment, and I think it's very important and neglected and if we took some time and really just looked at the physical environment, we might explain a lot of drug effects. But then you look, there's a social environment, which is there's first, there's a relationship. And that relationship could be from, you know, your ideal, supportive, libertarian, enhancing and affirming relationship all the way down to the most oppressive, you know, totalitarian, if you will, relationship that you can have with an individual or a group of people that may be oppressing you or helping you. You know, are you talking to someone who's been there before and has lived a lot of what you lived and has come out on the other side? Or are you talking to someone who only has an intellectual understanding of it? Are you talking to them in a busy emergency room with them paying attention to 12 other things? Or are you talking to them in a room where they're looking at you in the eyes and only paying attention to you and having ears for just what you say and totally interested in protecting your interests. And I can guarantee you that those kinds of relationships will influence how you feel the effect of a psychoactive substance. And what you said about the, um, the change in drug effects in laboratory animals, I mean, not to endorse laboratory animal science or anything, but just what we know about that is really significant because laboratory animals don't have the same kind of dominance of culture and language and symbols and, and really relationships that, that humans do. So the fact that it can be demonstrated in laboratories with animals shows that this is a very, very significant thing for drug effectiveness. And I'm thinking about the the work that Bruce Alexander did yes. uh, with the Rat Park experiments. People really need to know about this because we've been told that ad an addictive drug like cocaine or heroin is just the substance itself. That's what explains what's going on. It's the drug itself that is chemically the cause 
of the experience. Well, it turns out that those studies that we've heard about how a rat will continue to press the lever to get cocaine, even to the point of starving itself or dehydrating itself because it's so addicted to that cocaine, it turns out if you put the same rat in a different environment, if it's no longer in a crowded cage, if it has other rats, if it's in a social environment where it's there with its rat family, if it's in a lush and rich, large open area with lots of things to explore, if it's put into a different kind of environment, the drug effect is different. It will not go for that addictive substance, so-called, as much as it would in an impoverished, limited, isolated environment. So the fact that we can show that in the Bruce Alexander's experiment, the Rat Park experiment, that we can show that on an animal basis really points to the huge significance of this for humans. And David, are there studies that, that you've looked at that, that really support what you're saying about the significance of these social context factors? In humans, there, there, I think that, I think personally, all studies show it, but not many studies have actually investigated that. But I think that that's how we can explain a lot of the variety in, in response. But just before, before I get into that, let me suggest that there is also, there's a book by Richard de Grandpre. The cult of pharmacology, and he also gets into to, to some of those studies, like the Rad Park study, and that whole idea that the effects of the substance come packaged within the substance. They're they're in the substance. I think is a mythical effect. This idea that somehow the substance itself has the effect is partly true, but it's completely blown out of proportion. And the demonstration of that has to be in animal studies. And whereas the human studies, I believe all of them show this effect, all of them. It's just that it's not a, a specific focus or a variable that the researchers are, are looking at. But when you put all the studies together, you have, this is how I believe we explain why in this study, only 10% of the percent of the people responded. And I, th th there are a number of studies that show that the personality of the therapist explains, goes a longer way to explain whether a person finds a drug helpful than, than the drug or the model the, the, of therapy the therapist is using or the length of the therapy, but just the personal attributes and qualities of the therapist, whether they are strict biological psychiatrists or whether they are humanists, uh, humanistic psychologists, the clients will often rate themselves as improved depending on the qualities of the person they're dealing with. Hmm. What kinds of qualities make a difference for people? The strongest factor that correlates to their finding the drug therapy useful is who the therapist is as a person and how they look like to you and how they respond to you and how enthusiastic and sincere they are about what they're proposing to you. If they believe in its worth, then you will tend to feel better as a result of taking what they're offering you, whether it's uh, marathon running or whether it's uh, Zyprexa. We're now increasing or diversifying what context means. It means a particular space that's a healing space that you associate and you say, I think I could get better in this space, in this room with this leather couch that I'm sitting on with these pictures on the wall or these chimes blowing in the wind or the way I've been welcomed by the people leading me to my therapist or whatever it is, all of that is certain to play a role.
in how you're going to experience and appreciate your treatment. So that's the physical space, you could say. And then there's a social space of, do you believe that what this person is offering you could actually make a difference to help you? And that's your expectations also. You may believe that because of what you've been brought up to believe, because of the way your, your parents or your sister or your brother or your friends have been talking about this treatment, because of what you've seen on television, the books you've read, the attitudes you've acquired through your life about how medications help people with a disease, and you might think this is a disease you're dealing with, and all of that will play into whether it's going to help you or not. And then the sincerity and the enthusiasm of the person who's proposing and who believes yes, this, is, this is a healing substance. And when you put all of that together, the space, your own attitudes and expectations, the healer's own attitudes and expectations, my God, then anything, anything can work for you. And I mean, I mean literally anything. Mm -hmm. Including a placebo substance or a, or a sham surgery or a treatment that actually has no, nothing to it at all, just the belief that a treatment took place. It's really what's, but, but the belief is really important. I'm not being so relativistic to say, to say uh, that it's all belief, but I mean that there has to be some intervention. There has to be something that gives you a case of drugs. It gives you some palpable. You feel something physically. And that, of course, will be mediated through your chemistry, to the fact that we have a body. We are embodied creatures. We do feel through our body, with our body. So this is not just some abstract thing or it's all in your mind. We something. We swallow it. And then we feel something. But the how we will interpret and appreciate what we feel, that depends on the context. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is David Cohen. He's a professor at the School of Social Work at Florida International University. He's a therapist who has longtime experience working with psychiatric medications, including coming off medications. He's a longtime collaborator with the Psychiatric Survivor Movement and co-author of more than a dozen books, including Your Drug May Be Your Problem, co-authored with Peter Bregan, in French, A Critical Guide to Psychiatric Medications, and his upcoming book is Mad Science, Psychiatric Coercion, Diagnosis, and Drugs, co-authored with Stuart Kirk and Tommy Gamori. Well, David, this raises, I think, a question that I think some listeners may have which is, well, does this mean that you just have to change your beliefs, that it's really ultimately my fault or my responsibility or it's all up to me that if I just believe I'm going to get better, everything will, will get better? And that's really not, that's not what you're saying. This is not something that just can be chosen, that you can just believe differently. Because you can believe in something but still get hurt. You could believe someone's claim that this will help you, but it now may turn out that it doesn't help you. Now, if we take a hundred people that are being given a certain drug, well, for some people, those factors that I've mentioned, the context, the healing space, the healing attitude, your own expectation reverberated by the media, by everything, that it is going to work, all that put together, well, for easily 30, 40% of people, well, that might work. You know, they believe in it, and those other things are playing to some greater or lesser degree. And then, yes, quote-unquote, it works. They say, yeah, I like this. Yes, it's helped me. 
yes, I got over my hump. Yes, I can do what I wanted to do. Yes, this works for me. Yes, I think I could take it again. Yes, I think I will take it again. But for some people, they will believe that. But nevertheless, the belief will be belied by the effect. Will not be, it won't be interpreted as positive because they actually got hurt. Their arm can't move. They can't get up. They're eating all the time and they're sleeping all the time and they fell asleep at the wheel. Their spouse tells them, you're so aggressive now. Or their spouse or friend tells them, you're sleeping all the time. I can't reach you. So they slowly come to realize, well, maybe this is not helping me. So despite a belief, despite a whole bunch of positive attitudes on their end and on their healer's end, if you will, it's not working for them. So all of this overcomes belief. So this is different than the idea, just the power of positive thinking or just the idea of visualizing some kind of positive outcome for people. Completely different because by definition, if you're sincere about it, if you believe it, then there's no visualizing. You're not working towards trying to get better. You just believe it. You're just going along. And a lot of this is just being experienced, not with you saying, oh, yes, this is a good place for me. Yes, I trust this person. You're not necessarily saying that. You're just experiencing that. Can you give us some more examples of how the research supports this idea that there are these social and expectation factors that really determine the outcome? Well, you could see it with illicit drugs, I guess. You could see it that how different people have different appreciations of them. And that's why it's important to put all drugs on an equal footing, all drugs that are psychoactive, whether they're prescribed or not prescribed. Because all illicit drugs today basically were at one point prescribed and promoted by physicians. So it's not merely the fact that they're not licit or illegal today that puts them in a special chemical class. A lot of the drugs that we take and are given by doctors are just as addictive, if you want to use that word, or just as uh, destructive as drugs that are illicit or illegal. So when you put all drugs together, you find that some people appreciate them and others don't. And a lot of it has to do with the context of use. And before LSD was illegal, people didn't have bad trips on LSD. People didn't discuss bad trips. And people began to discuss bad trips only when LSD became illegal. And, 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 and a few awful stories were in the media. And the media started to talk about chromosome damage. And that's when you began to to have bad trips. Hmm, the context changes and now there's fear in the social environment that wasn't there before. It wasn't there before and it radically changed people's expectations about it, about what to expect on, let's say, an LSD or whatever trip. And then it began to produce precisely what the context was saying occurs often. And then you begin to have a lot of bad trips and they begin to be a staple part of the drug. I think that helps to explain why the social context is important. But when you talk to people who have been taking medications, you get all these different reactions and perceptions. And I don't think necessarily it's a fact that it's all about or mostly about the social context. But I think it makes so much sense to interpret drug effects by looking at how the social context is. I think it makes perfect sense to me. It's a wonderful hypothesis. And it, when it gets tested, 
it survives the tests. And I think it really emphasizes the the subjective nature of drug response, that different people are going to have very, very different experiences. And we know that there are all kinds of paradoxical effects that, for example, someone can take a stimulant and end up going to sleep, or someone could take a benzodiazepine tranquilizer and get very, very excited and have a very strong stimulating reaction to it, that everybody really is different in their response that they generate to these different psychoactive drugs because they're the environment and the expectations and the background and the subjective experience that they bring in is really ultimately unique to the individual. It's ultimately linked to the individual indeed. Now, now, I, I don't mean to say that the drug itself does not play some role. I don't want to relegate the drug but every time I say the word drug effect, as soon as I say that word in my own mind, it's blown up to include so many things, simply because I've been looking at this for so long that I can no longer think of a, a pure drug effect, uncontaminated by perception and expectation and so forth. And that's what's captured in that famous phrase by a Harvard psychiatrist, I'm forgetting his name, drug, set, and setting. He said every reaction or every drug effect is a result of the drug, the set, by which he meant the psychological state of the person, and setting, the context. And really, it, I don't think we can go better than that. It's drug, set, and setting. At worst, you could say they're equal, equal partners. That's at worst. Sometimes I think they vary. The contribution of each varies in a given set with a given drug with a given person. Or with the same person, one time, one shot of alcohol or morphine or Zyprexa will create an effect, but in a di at a different time, in a different space, with a different vulnerability or different stress that you're going through, it's going to have a different effect. And I don't know if we need to go into much deeper, deeper than that because I think that's a basic observation that we keep making with animals, lower animals, and with people. And David, what are some of the implications for uh, clinical practice around this social understanding of, of drug effect? Well, number one, I think one of the major implications is that we need to rethink the, the notion that we can detect whether people need drugs. You know, this person needs a drug. I think that that whole notion is based on the medical idea that, well, you have a disease and a drug will somehow cure or seriously reduce the pain or the uh, bad consequences of that disease, therefore you need a drug. But in most of the problems that we prescribe psychoactive drugs for, that notion of need is just get, needs to be blown up literally in a thousand pieces. It's not so much people need drugs, as people have to decide, given their current circumstances, could this drug effect be useful to me? How long would it be useful to me for? What other options do I have? What are the costs of experiencing this effect? Because there's no simple short-term effect. Everything turns into a longer-term effect the longer I use the drug. And there's rebound effects. And there are withdrawal effects. And all that has to be factored in. And so those are some of the implications, is that a lot of what we've been taught about why drugs may be useful to people just has to be, 
you know, relearned. We have to, to invent new ways that people should decide. Is this useful to me? Is this helpful to me? How could I make this a better experience? What else could I do? So addressing the whole question of, of this idea that, that we can detect whether someone needs a drug or not, what are some other implications in terms of clinical practice or the way we use these medications and prescribe them? One thing is it's, it's hard to be, quote, against drugs or, quote, for drugs once you think this way. Then I think that, certainly speaking for myself, I've developed uh, a, just a huge respect for what people have to say about their experiences on drugs. So I really respect when a person tells me I've been taking this drug and this thing has been the best thing that I've ever done in my life and I couldn't live without it. And I respect that. I say this is a valid judgment because it's, it, that, it tells me it works for them. And just as equally, I'll respect that another person tells me this has been the worst thing that's happened to me. This has wrecked me, ruined my life. I'll never be the same person. I don't think I'll ever get over what this substance did to me. And, and I, I'll never regain the trust that I lost in, in people who recommended I take this, who told me this would help me, who insisted or who ignored my cries of help or my, my descriptions of the harm it was causing. So I respect that too, that kind of judgment. I think that's what this more social view of drug effects suggests that we do, that we take very seriously people who say this has helped me, and we take just as seriously people who say this is harming me. But it doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree with the person when they say why the drug is effective. Like, I, like, oh, I know this drug is saving my life because I have this disease and the drug is targeting my psychosis and it tweaks my neurotransmitters. And No, and I don't agree with that personally. However, and I think the only analogy I can make is an analogy with religion. And I've heard people describe to me their religious beliefs or things they believe, whether it's astrology or Orthodox Judaism or Christianity or, or Buddhism or what have you. And some of those beliefs I might share or, or feel sympathy with or just find interesting and others I don't. And so I respect these beliefs, but I don't necessarily have to agree with them. Or I don't have to say, therefore, I believe what you believe simply because you believe it. Or and we don't have to necessarily accept a claim that's made that's an unscientific claim. Like, for example, well, we know schizophrenia is a brain disease. And, well, we actually have to step back from that and say, okay, that's maybe your belief. But just like you believe in a Christian God or a Buddhist spiritual practice, there isn't a scientific support for that as a truth statement, in a sense. But that's a slightly, if I may uh, bring in a, maybe a subtle definition or a subtle distinction here. There's a slight difference between the issue of does the person have a condition called schizophrenia? I think that's an empirical question. And I think we can show, no, they don't. You know, there's nothing that distinguishes them from other people who are said not to have the condition. There's no phenomenon that we can identify and keep saying that, you know, here's what's different inside these people. And the only thing we'd have to say is something is different in their body. For us to say that this condition called schizophrenia is a fact of nature, not just a consequence of our own just judgment, for us to say it's real, it exists, we have to show 
that there's something different in these people's bodies and there's nothing else that will do for us to say it's a disease and it exists, we have to show a biomarker. And we have to show it consistently related to people who have the diagnosis and only them. And we have to show it's causally related, that it causes what we say they disturbs uh, us about their behavior. And we absolutely have not been able to do that scientifically for however many 50, 60, 70 years that they've been searching for such a, a biological abnormality or difference. There's no empirical evidence of that, of that claim. No, but that's a different story than a person saying, I believe this drug works for me because I have this disease or, or something else. Like, I believe this drug works for me because it works for me. And I can respect. I can respect them believing that. I may have a different judgment on whether this drug is in fact working for them. According to my own understanding of what's in their interest, I may feel this drug is screwing them up. They may feel this drug is helping me. So I can understand that difference of opinion and I can still see as valid that they believe it helps them, but I don't have to agree with them. And sometimes I may discuss with them what I see that suggests to me that it's not helping them but I do it with as much respect as I can muster. And what are some of the implications of this view of psychoactive substances as really being socially constructed to such a strong degree? What are some of the implications for the coming off medications process? Because I know that there are many people who are really working on coming off medications or considering coming off medications, and they're trying to really figure out, well, what is this drug doing to me, and how do I really approach coming off in an effective way. What are some of the implications of this for that? You know, we may not have too much time, but let me, let me suggest that whereas it's a natural thing, I feel, to, to take medications, you know, when we're in our society and maybe in human society, we're, we're encouraged to take things and swallow things when we have a boo-boo, you know, a problem by our parents, by, by everything. It's a little less natural to stop taking things, perhaps. It's just something that seems to me to organize the way people work with medications. So whereas to find a medication useful, you don't really have to do anything but just kind of go along and experience that, hey, this person's nice and sincere and let's see what happens. When you want to stop taking a drug, I think you have to change your belief. And so here I think it requires something a little more active. And there's two parts to this. Number one, I think that the most important thing is to change your idea about what this drug was doing to you. That's really key. And that frees you from this, you know, from your, your idea that this drug was in fact helping you. Usually when people want to stop, they've already come to some kind of belief like this. Not all of them, but many of them now have serious doubts. They're in pain. They're hurting. They're literally hurting. They, they've got a, some, sometimes major physical problems that the drug's been inducing for years or months. And they say, this is not good for me. But they're not quite free of the idea that maybe, maybe uh, I don't need a drug. Maybe I could use something else. Well, this is the big reason why I think the idea of a, of a disease process and that the drug is treating a disease process is so problematic is that it closes off that exploration of other possibilities. It creates a lot of fear. I mean, I, I was working with a client the other day who was told by her doctor, if you don't take an antidepressant, you are endangering your unborn child because women who are pregnant with depression, the depression is toxic to the child. And this is just such a fear 
message that so many people are getting that there's a disease process, I have to take the pill to counteract the disease process, or these terrible things are going to happen to me, maybe even suicide or madness or, or even to my children. And, and that's the problem with that rigid message that we give is that it closes off other options for people. Well, it certainly does. I think that these sorts of messages, they're not new. They're messages that authorities have always given to people trying to move away from the grips of the authorities. They've always said, no, 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 stick with what I've been teaching you or doing with you, because if you do something else, you're really going to get hurt, and it's going to be very bad for you. And that's, so there's really nothing for me to say too much about this, except that you know, if you don't recognize propaganda for propaganda, then, then there's really nothing for you to do un, you know, until you recognize it, until either through some teaching or hearing someone speak on the radio or something, you decide, well, maybe what I've been told is propaganda. Maybe it's just a claim. And I have to look at the interest of the person who's making the claim and wonder who's really benefiting from that claim. Am I really benefiting? So it's a kind of a consciousness-raising thing that has to occur with yourself but with other people. And it's through those encounters that you come to maybe have a different point of view about the usefulness of believing that you should follow this person's advice. And that's why it's so important that we get a diversity of stories out there, that we're not just hearing the stories of people who the medications have helped and they feel saved by the medications, but we're also hearing the stories of people who are like, look, this medication didn't work for me, I got off of it, and now I'm doing much better. We need to hear those stories as well. And we need to understand also, uh, if I may say, Will, just uh, that sometimes something a person may find extremely useful, the psychoactive effect of a medication that maybe the rest of us would not find useful. The, the extreme you know, clouding of your thinking may be something that maybe nobody wants, but a lot of people who are very tense and can't sleep and are extremely worried about something or terrorized about something, they will find this, you know, clouding and slowing of their thinking and the deep lethargy, they'll find that extremely useful. It can be an incredible respite if you've been distressed by, by over, overactive thinking and, and intense emotions to just be chilled out for a while. Yeah, definitely. Yes, it, they will find it useful. Of course, there will be a cost. There is no free lunch when it comes to a drug effect. I believe there's always almost a symmetrical price, if you will, to pay for the the cost of completely slowing down your behavior or jacking it up or stimulating yourself there's always a cost that the organism you know pays is it like an equal and opposite reaction is, is going to occur and david one of the implications of what you're saying is that also withdrawal effects from coming off medications themselves also have a socially constructed context and expectation based factor is that is that right Yes, it's absolutely right. Just as a simple example, tardive dyskinesia or just dyskinesia, so abnormal involuntary movements, which often occur while a person is withdrawing from the uh, first-generation antipsychotic drugs, is, is considered really a neurological involuntary movement. But it, it stops when a person sleeps, number one. There's never these movements when people sleep. Plus, when you, when you are measuring the movement, when you're asking people to extend an arm or to look at a leg or, or to you know, look at their arm while you're seeing if there's some kind of tremor movement and they're paying attention to it, it slows down. They control it. And when they're looking somewhere else or you ask them to count to five or so and they're no longer paying attention to it, it can come up again. 
you, you, it's more visible. Just at a simple level like that, something that's considered an abnormal, involuntary movement that you have no real control over, well, you can have some control over. And in stressful periods, they get worse very often. So just a very simple kind of abnormal reaction that most people will say is drug-induced, there's a large measure of control of that reaction. Are there other examples of how withdrawal effects can be seen as socially uh, shaped? Based on how much you know about it and, wh and what people who've been through it tell you, you will either be relaxed about it and you will say that, I think what I'm going through is exactly what I've been told. And the person who told me, whom I trust, told me that this is the way it's going to go. And then it's going to slow down and stop. So I just need to be, that's what it is. It's a drug withdrawal effect. It means the drug is leaving my body and my brain is reacting to that gradual absence. That's what it means. And that means that I will get better, that it's going to go away. And when you have that understanding, you bear it better. It's not as distressing. It takes away a lot of the edge in some people. So that to me would be an example of, but if you don't know what this is, if you believe that, oh my goodness, I've actually slowed down this drug, I've reduced the dosage, now I'm feeling this, and my doctor told me I'd get much worse. He was right. I'm worse now. It's worse. I'm crying. I'm upset. I have a pain. And I think I need to get back on that drug. So that, you know, different knowledge or understanding will create a different appreciation of what you're going through. And it may increase even the pain, make you frustrated with not having listened, and you might even feel much, much worse physically. I, th I think these are just some, some examples, or many other examples we could think of, of how the effects are socially constructed, all have to do with expectation. And it's like any kind of effect on the brain, who's around you to help you through it, who compensates for the deficits that it causes, that's really what makes a difference to your functioning, is what is the social support that you're getting while all this is happening? I think that's the biggest, biggest factor in, in, in helping people come off drugs. And, and David, in terms of the social factors here and the, the social construction and the expectations and the beliefs, it also seems that there's a whole ritual in the healing process that you go to a doctor and there's this kind of ritualistic element. Do you feel that that plays a role in, in determining the effectiveness of treatment as well? The, the point of a ritual is it puts some order. It's a procedure. The fact is a ritual is something that is a, a repetition and that one does with hope with a certain contrition, with a certain attitude, with a certain respect. And one sets a time for it and a place for it. And I think that drug taking, even taking your, your psychiatric drug, is very much akin to a ritual. And there are elements. It's something very private. It could be public. You feel part of a community, yet you feel extremely alone as you're doing this. It has the element of a sacrament. There is something that is given to you that's recommended that you take inside of you, you swallow. And there is an element that this will protect you, that you are, you're repeating this on a regular basis. Doctors become like priests almost. Well, yes, and there's really nothing new in, in, in what I'm saying here. But the fact is that when we're talking about psychoactive drugs, it so happens that these are the drugs that have created our fundamental religious rituals. I think it's no accident that we have wine as a sacrament in some major religions. 
It's wine. It's not water that we hold up and we make a prayer around. It's actually alcohol. And I think that there is something, and that's why the effect, the effect of the drug is not something to just completely relegate to, to nothing. There is something about the psychoactive effect of a drug, probably that it gives meaning to our lives. It allows us to view ourselves and to give meaning to our suffering, to our existence. And so that's why our religious rituals have psychoactive substances because taking psychoactive substances used to be our religious rituals. And now we've repudiated the real psychoactive part of the ritual. And now we just have the ritual and nothing else. And that piece of it often gets transposed to taking a medicine for our ailment. It's very similar. So, so we can dismiss that element of ritual and its importance in our lives, both as individuals and as communities also. David, you're the co-author of more than a dozen books, and tell us about the new book that you have coming out soon. The new book is probably a, a very exciting book for me because it was written with Stuart Kirk and Tommy Gomori, who have turned out because of the writing of this book, to, to, to be real good friends of, of mine. We've become extremely close, and uh, we share in common that we, we are three professors of social work. We've all studied at Berkeley. We all did doctoral studies at Berkeley, but at different decades. We've all written independently about major psychiatric claims that we believed were only claims and not necessarily truth or had no real evidence to back them up. And we got together to, to look at the three major revolutions in psychiatry for the last 40 to 60 years, the whole shift to community treatment, the uh, move to a descriptive style of diagnosis called the DSM, and the massive increase in prescribed psychoactive drugs. So we've looked at each of those so-called revolutions, and basically we deconstruct them and find that these revolutions are really illusions, and they're what we call mad science. And that's the title of the book. That's the title of the book, and it's coming out in uh, February or March 2013 with Transaction Publishers. And it's called Mad Science, Psychiatric Coercion, Diagnosis, and Drugs. That's correct. David, we don't have very much time left. Can you just tell us um, how people can get in touch with you and if there's a website or, or a way that they can get more information about you and your work? My uh, email address is cohenda at fiu.edu, and that is spelled C-O-H-E-N-D-A at F for Florida, I-U dot E-D-U. And the uh, website I created, which is an online course on psychotropic meds, a critical curriculum for child welfare professionals and mental health professionals, is criticalthinkrx.org. David Cohen, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you very much, Will Hall. It, is, it shall remain a pleasure to have been on your show. You've been listening to an interview with David Cohen. He's a professor of the School of Social Work at Florida International University. He's a longtime therapist who's worked with psychiatric medications and people coming off psychiatric medications. His collaboration with the psychiatric survivor movement goes back many decades and includes being co-author of a number of books, including with Peter Bregan, Your Drug May Be Your Problem, and in French, A Critical Guide to Psychotropic Medications. His new book is co-authored with Stuart Kirk, and Tomi Gomori, and it's called Mad Science, Psychiatric Coercion, Diagnosis, and Drugs. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in.
You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.